I'm David Smith, and you're listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. In this series, we'll be talking with researchers and educators who are working to understand how Christian faith affects teaching, learning, and the way we do education. Today, it's my delight to have with me uh, John Sullivan, who's uh, Emeritus Professor of Christian Education at Liverpool Hope University uh, in England, and uh, and uh, a long-time um, uh, co-conspirator, I guess, in the field of, uh, of, of Christian education. We, we edited a journal together um, some decades ago, um, and uh, John has been active for, for quite a long time, um, especially writing books around Catholic schooling, um, Catholic education. And uh, what prompted this conversation is his latest book, which uh, came out just recently, which is called Lights for the Path, uh, published by Veritas Publications in Dublin. Um, so, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be with you. And t- tell us about this new book. What You've got a ton of books under your belt already. You didn't need another one to float the CV. So why did you set about writing this one? Um. I felt that something was lacking in the repertoire of teachers who work in in Christian schools, including Catholic schools. Um, I felt that they they had academic knowledge, they had professional skills, that they loved children and they wanted to do their best for them. But I thought something was missing in their repertoire in terms of working in the context of Christian schools. I think that students work, and I, I, for this particular book, unlike some, uh, for instance, the previous book, The Christian Academic in Higher Education, was very much intended to be ecumenical in terms of readership and its sources. But this one is the only book I've written where a definite publisher uh, was in view from the very beginning. Um, and it was for them. Um, and so it was more narrowly for Catholic schools. And I felt that the pupils and the students in Catholic universities should find their experience equipped them to engage in our culture constructively, winsomely and confidently in the light of the gospel. But if that was to happen, then their teachers in schools and universities would themselves need some appreciation of the intellectual and spiritual tradition of Catholicism, they would need sufficient depth of understanding to be able to draw upon that tradition um, with fidelity, yes, but with creativity and flexibility. And so I was trying to add another string to the bow of the teachers that um, I've worked with and continue to do so. I mean, I, I have in my head long experience of school leadership, local authority leadership, and in-service training all over the place. So I'm conscious of both the good things that are present and some of the gaps that I think are there. And just before we began, you you used the word countercultural. I mean, if I'm talking too much, you just stop me. That's good. But it it was after I finished the book um, that I realized that there were four countercultural sort of motivations that actually implicitly came through, though I don't think I explicitly addressed them. And so the you might say, well, what was if that if what I've just said is what the book was for, 
then what was it against? It was against four damaging features of our contemporary landscape. One is presentism, and we might return to that if you wish. Another was performativity, and again we might return to that in a minute. Uh, a third was intellectual flabbiness that didn't do justice to the, either to the moral or the intellectual demandingness of Christian faith. And the fourth feature is the separation um, of the intellectual, spiritual and professional practical dimensions of teachers' life and work. Um, that last one has been a passion of mine to integrate them as much as is practically possible at every level in teaching and in, in master's work in research in writing that really rings true to my experience of reading the book i mean it, it's uh it, it's not a light read it makes you do some some thinking um some intellectual work it's certainly not presentist it's uh it delves quite a way back beyond the last couple of years um and uh and, it, and it's all about this attempt to you know make connections between how we think and um you know our faith tradition um so just g give us your account of what a, a reader picks this up lights for the path opens the opens the cover what are they in for what kind of ride should they expect um they're in for a ride where they're introduced to nine men and women across the centuries from the seventh to the 20th um from a diverse range of academic traditions with strengths in theology, philosophy, history, politics, poetry, music, drama, medicine, education, literature, and communication technology, about whom they've probably heard little or almost nothing, uh, and no prior knowledge is assumed. Um, and um, in every case, they're introduced to key features of the life and work of these men and women, and what they have to say to guide or illuminate or inspire the work of teachers in schools and universities uh, in the 21st century. So I, I keep one eye trained on the current situation of Catholic schools and universities, what I see to be their opportunities, their strengths and their weaknesses, and one eye focused on the distant past and its outlook and wisdom. And I hope that makes me bifocal, not cross-eyed. <laughs> Um, it, it's. I'm, I'm a little fascinated by. I, you know, it could be coincidence, but I wonder if there's um, a, a, a tiny trend going on in that. Just recently, we had Kyle Hughes on the podcast, um, who has a book out uh, this side of the Atlantic recently called "Teaching for Spiritual Formation." I've reviewed that, it. That goes, goes back to the Church Fathers, right? And um, uh, I think Ken Badley and a colleague, and uh, the, the other names escaping me, had a book a couple of years ago that was a collection of. Uh, people we could learn from about education. It feels like there's a few of these volumes been been coming out, almost a, a bit of a kind of an attempt to recover yes. some of this that might might be a reaction to just the amount of presentism that there is in discussion of education right now. Because yeah. you know, we were saying just before we started recording, right, Max, Maximus the Confessor is probably not on very many teacher education program reading lists. No, not, nor would Eva Stein be, though she was an exemplary teacher and teacher educator. Yeah. Well, t tell us about the Edith Stein um, uh, section. What, what, as an example, what, what might we glean from that interaction? Well, there's there's two types of learning. There's the kind of learning that people who are already Christian can get, 
but there's also quite a lot of what you might call general knowledge about education that she that she can give to readers i mean she's pretty good on articulating the pros and cons of the ma major agencies for education the family uh, the state and the church and in showing the pluses of each of those but what they can't do and why they need each other um, another area is that she's very good at is she introduces um, how education occurs at the conjunction of five factors uh, the appropriation of culture that's curriculum selection where you choose se select something that you think is worthwhile introducing young people to uh, the experience of community life i haven't come across anyone who's brought these five together the the actual initiative of the teacher and often teachers don't act carry out their work in, in connection with an experience of the community life the personal activity of the learner uh, that underlies this and the operation of divine grace not only the last factor the operation of divine grace is peculiar to christians but the way that she brings these five together mutually implicated and operating um, another thing i found quite interesting is that she um, shows both the need to introduce young people to cultural goods i'm using that phrase rather than just a curriculum but that because it includes values and practices as well as areas of knowledge but at the same time to guide them into adopting a culture a, a countercultural stance so she's able to identify positive features of her culture and where it is going wrong and help so the combination of thinking there are cultural goods that we have a duty to help young people to learn from and engage with but we mustn't swallow the culture as it currently exists because that would be to do a disservice now more explicitly christian she, she, for her for, for edith stein resemblance to christ is the ultimate goal in her mind what she aspires to though she's very clear in saying that each person has to achieve this in his or her own unique way so she's not producing clones disciples are not clones they're not even clones of jesus actually um, so education is to be carried out from, from a christian teacher's point of view with the aim of helping individuals to become the persons that god intends them to be capable and willing to share the divine life so the educator as a collaborator with grace god plays the primary role and the teacher a subordinate role but a subordinate role that is a good role and a necessary role uh, and if resemblance to christ is the ultimate aim uh, then, then the greatest activity that humans engage in is prayer and education itself is um, a humanizing activity which equips people to pray better uh, i mean the similarity between prayer and education is that in prayer you open yourself up willingly to god and in education even in a compulsory setting nothing worthwhile happens without your willing consent and the effort of the learner so freedom of spirit is integral to prayer and to education 
Um, and for her, prayer and education both have the qualities that they they build, they deepen, they reinforce human personhood. They're humanizing. I can pick one more major contribution. Um, I was just going just to say before we, before we add that, maybe um, the uh, the thing about students not being clones and needing some freedom reminds me of something Bonhoeffer says in uh, in, in Life Together, where he says that uh, your students are called to be made in God's image, not in the teacher's image. Yes. Um, and, uh, and and so there's this sense both that, that there is a standard, but the the teacher themselves is not the complete embodiment of that standard. So, so no, they're pointing, they're pointing yeah. the way, not to themselves. Yeah. And so he says, the student might surprise you. The, the, what the image of God looks like in the student might be nothing like what you had in mind. Yes, um, yes. She would totally agree with that. She said yeah. something very similar. Okay, yeah. Uh, the, the, the other thing I was going to pick up, that what we might learn from Edith Stein, what teachers in particular might learn, is she referred to five types of knowledge. Uh, uh, probably for her, the most important is an understanding of the nature and development of human beings as individuals, but also as members of communities who need to belong to and benefit from and contribute to those communities. So one kind of knowledge that all teachers need is they need to know about human persons, and what they're capable of and what their issues are. Um, then extremely practically, she says, teachers need to know about the social structure of the school they work in. Otherwise, there'll be a misfit and they'll perhaps be, either lose their job or not not they, they won't manage to be practically effective you have to you have to politically read the environment which always gives permissions and constraints um she teaches us that although you need to know about human persons in general you have to be able to recognize the particular nature of the young people in front of you uh, with with their context and its challenges and opportunities so you, you can't teach well if you don't know people well mm -hmm. um, then in terms of curriculum you do have to have some grasp of the cultural tradition in order to be competent enough to pass it on appropriately and and then what i like about her because i've often been asked by student teachers if you had to pick one thing from your 50 odd years of being a teacher that teachers need. I've always said self-knowledge, which isn't the most obvious thing. And it's only later I found that's what she said too. You have to know how your personality and character are influencing those you teach. And the likelihood is that's going to be both positive and negative because we are limited human beings. And even, even at our best, there are some people for whom I'm an obstacle and, and even you're an obstacle for some people as well as an asset. And they have to be clear about their purposes and their goals uh, and the, the people they're working with, uh, um, and the resources at their disposal. Uh, and they, they need to know about what helps and hinders learning. But I like the priority she gives to self-knowledge. How can you embody that personhood is vitally important and you're not in touch with your own. Um, so that, that was Edith Stein. Mm -hmm. tell, tell us just a little bit about the, the, the context out of which she's, she's writing these things. What's the, what's the story in which those things are embedded for those that are not familiar? Well, 
she, she had special needs. Come, she came from a Jewish community, Jewish family. She lost her faith early. She was one of the very early feminists at the beginning of the 20th century. She worked with really high powered philosophers. Um, and in her life, she experienced um, serious discrimination, both because of her Jewish background. That really came into play much later when the Nazis came to power. Mm -hmm. and it led to her premature death in the concentration camp. But but also she met pre, um, discrimination and prejudice as a, as a really first-class woman academic. Uh, when she applied for university posts, she was not allowed to take them up. Actually, later on, she changed that situation by her example and advocacy. But um, so she was working in a background um, after the First World War, where she was involved in being a nurse. Um, in the Weimar Republic, um, as pretty strong advocate beyond her teaching role in women's issues and in social issues. Um, so she was asked, to, apart from her teaching in school, to give lots of talks to a variety of um, once she became a Catholic, to lay, lay men and women's groups with a particular strength on women's issues. Mm -hmm. um, some people would consider her um, out of touch with what contemporary feminists think, but for her time, she was very far advanced. It, it's sort of a fascinating combination to me looking at, um, and I guess I'm curious whether this played any role in your selection of people, um, but like in one sense, this is a... Um, we might look at this as a very traditional book, right? It's it's heroes of the faith from the past, from the yes. history of the church, and yet you've chosen some pretty feisty ones. Um, that the, the, they're, they're not necessarily individuals who sort of rolled over and did what they were told in the context of the church of their day. No, no, no they they certainly didn't. Hildegard would be a very fine example of that. Right. She, she took to task several popes and and other abbots, and was. Um, pretty well the equivalent of excommunicated and overthrew it by proving them wrong in her yeah. lifetime. Um, and, and Maximus got into some pretty big trouble with uh, with the, <laughs> the the committees of his day as well. So. And lost his tongue and hand yeah. because of it, yes. And I found that sort of a good reminder because it, it can seem as if this kind of, you know, the dip back in tradition is just a... Um, it's kind of just a conservative move, right? It's just a um, no. uh, kind of a being being faithful to, to the tradition. But of course, when you go back to the tradition, you find a lot of the really interesting people have had to dig in and push back against things that were happening, including things that were happening in their church. That that was one. You are right. That was one of the things that I wanted to show that it is perfectly possible to be a fully committed, if you like, insider and yet also not in any way be satisfied with the current living out of one's faith community. Yeah. Uh, this came up actually only two days ago at Canterbury Christchurch when I was giving a talk about the previous book, The Christian Academic. It is perfectly possible, uh, uh, both for me but for plenty of other people, to feel I can't not be in this faith community. I know I'm both fallible and limited and I need this help and support and encouragement. And at the same time, to feel very strong reservations about aspects of its betrayal of what it should mm -hmm. be. And Etienne Gilson is the same. In the 1930s, highly critical of the Catholic Church of his day, 
uh, for, for being satisfied with mediocrity uh, and, and compromise and, um, and, and, and deserving not to have the, not deserving the respect that its mission might merit. Um, so yeah, I, I don't see myself that looking to the past is idolizing the past. I'm not advocating we return to the 7th or the 13th or the 19th century. I don't believe there ever was a golden age, but you know, I believe in the communion of saints that with God, there are no dead. I believe what GK Chesterton said about the democracy of the dead, but why should I take less notice of someone for the, the slightly inferior reason that they're not around anymore? Um, I, I'm reading currently Ivan Illich for the first time since the 1970s, and I'm very struck by this polymath who kept returning to the past in order to give him an angle of perspective on the present. He wanted to undermine the certainties and assumptions that we have now about water, about transport, about gender, about schools, um, about, about loads of things, by getting into the mindset of a, an era when there were different assumptions, not because they were entirely, they'd got it right, but by, by being able to delve there, you could, you, you could see the present sufficiently differently not to be kidnapped by the present. I also believe that teachers need to keep company uh, with not, not only reach out to those that are, uh, are different, but, but they need to keep company with like mind. We all need allies and supporters to, to continue to play the game we believe we ought to play. And part of that company is no longer with us in the sense of physically. I, I love that phrase of being kidnapped by the present. And, and I think that's very well put that, that I find this myself, right? We, we read we read people from the past, not because they have necessarily have automatically better answers just because they were no. um, a long time ago, but because uh, we don't start from the assumption that our own intellectual resources are sufficient to the day. Um, and that there are, there are conversation partners who can help us think in ways that would never have occurred to us um, and just give us a fresh lens. I was, I was really struck in the... Um, uh, the Hildegard of Bingen chapter, um, there was a section I found quite suggestive where you talk about uh, the uh, the difference between educating for results and educating for fruits. Um, yes. And uh, I, that, that got me thinking. I don't know if you want to, want to say anything more about that. I've sprung that question on you, but uh, sort of what the difference is between educating for results and educating for fruits. Um, it, it's... Uh, it's, it connects to me with 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 hope versus control as well. Yes. Right? There are things that you hope students will grow into, but that are not necessarily things that you can hammer out by controlling everything. Yeah, I, th I think one of the prevailing sins, if I can use, or defects of the, our current educational context is we are overdosing on prediction, performativity, outcomes, results, external apparent objective standards. Um, to such an extent that the tools we're using are constraining our, bet our better ideas about what we're striving for. And I think teaching and learning is essentially a dramatic and unpredictable activity. Yeah, sure, you go into it with uh, some hopes and intentions, but the idea that you can control the process um, 
seems to me to, to stifle it. And this applies in the, the world of faith as well. I mean, one of the things that Illich is very strong on is that the, the defects of our contemporary culture are actually a perversion of Christianity at, uh, uh, caused by the church. Um, mm -hmm. when, because the church slipped from one mode of being into being controlling. In the, in the service of what it saw was good, but prescribed so much, and this applies across the churches, um, that actually once you take away the connection with the transcendent and with God, you're just left with the controlling mechanisms. And he, mm. you know, he writes about many secular practices as inherited from a perversion of Christianity. So they're not the fulfillment of it and they're not the abandonment of it, but actually the perversion of it. That's a str I mean, I'm, I'm still struggling with that, but um, it connects with what you're asking. Um, yeah. I mean, fruit, fruits is something that you can hope for, you can nurture for, you can do your part, but it's not down to you to make it happen. Whereas results, it's part of the technocratic mentality that you can measure, predict and control. There's so much more in here we could talk about. We've barely scratched the surface um, and we're already uh, up against time here. Sure. Um, I, I'm just going to recommend that people uh, uh, find the book and, uh, and, and dive in. Um, what you will get is a, um, uh, an intense and rewarding um, encounter with some past uh, Christian thinkers that, uh, that in, in a number of cases, it's pretty likely that listeners will not have engaged with before. Um, along with some thoughts on how they can actually inform how we think about um, education. Um, it, it's not a lightweight book. It asks some, some work of you, and the work gets rewarded with some, uh, uh, some really provocative thinking. And like we said, it's not just an exercise in dredging up the past. It's, uh, it's an exercise in spending time with people who've actually uh, pushed for Christian change um in uh, in the context in which in which they were working so thank you for all the work on it there's a there's a great deal of scholarship evident in the pages here um i'm sure it wasn't written in a weekend so uh you know, <laughs> thank you for the uh, you, uh for the labor that went into the book and uh, and thank you for talking to us pleasure thank you David. Um, so the book again john sullivan lights for the path published by veritas publications um in dublin ireland uh, the web address is www.veritas Dot IE. Um, recommended read for this episode. Go check it out. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. Learn more at www.pedagogy.net.